Hello, this is the Wine of Life podcast. Um, tonight, I'll be um, playing a sermon that I preached on November 29th, 2020. Uh, it's called Four Questions. It comes from Genesis 2, 15 through 25. So this was preached at Westerly Hills Baptist Church in Fort Mill, South Carolina. So here we go. Hope you enjoy it. Thank you. How are y'all doing? Huh? You sure? We need some juice in here. Y'all got to get going. We haven't been here but um, a few minutes, haven't we? I want you to turn to, to Genesis 2. This isn't quite a Christmas message. This is a little bit different. Um, but there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of uh, scripture that I want you to turn to throughout. So even though it starts at the beginning, you don't have long to go. Uh, we're going to read 15 through 25, but I want you to turn with me when we go to the other places. I'm serious about that. I'm watching. I'm watching you. I want you. When I turn to the other places, I, I'm going to expect that you also turn to those <clears throat> other chapters as well. We're going to read about the beginning and we're going to read about four things that come up with regards to man and his relationship to God. And there are four questions that come out from that. And I think that those four questions are really important for us. It's important for the church. It's important for society and so on and so forth. We're going to read 15 through 25 of Genesis chapter 2. Stand if you can. Uh, I don't think that this will take too long. I usually read fast and when I, when I do stuff. So as we go, you'll, you'll be all right. It won't take long. It goes like this. It says, and the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded man saying... Of every tree of the garden they met, that thou mayest freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. And the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helpmeet for him. And out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. And Adam gave names to all cattle and to the fowl of the air. And to every beast of the field, but for Adam, there was not found a help me for him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam and he slept and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib, which the Lord God took from man, made he a woman and brought her unto the man. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother. And shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Uh, Father, thank you for this time we have together. I thank you uh, that we're able to freely meet and freely worship you. Uh, thank you for the singing that we had this morning. And I pray that um, your spirit will fill this place. And that everything that uh, is being spoken tonight will be your will. And will honor and glorify you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Go ahead and sit down if you feel like it. Uh, you can still stand if you want. But there are four things that come up from this uh, that become problems when the fall happens. And it already starts back there and then it and then it moves forward as, of course, man falls. The first issue that is going to be a question we're going to uh, look into is a spiritual question. And this is not going to be whether or not God exists, because that is not really the issue that man struggles with, whether or not God exists 
Man generally does believe in God. There's very few people that don't believe in God. And the people who don't believe in God are people who are angry at God. That's one of the reasons why they end up not believing in God. The real question, the spiritual question is, should man align his will to God's? And we see when we look at verses uh, 15 through 18 um, of this, we see that it is God putting man in places and giving him commandments. All right. We don't hear about what Adam really wants to do. It's just God saying, I'm going to put man in this place. Then I'm going to tell him he has to do this. I'm going to tell him what he can eat, what he can't eat, so on and so forth. And so we're going to talk about that and why I sympathize with the way that Adam behaved later on. The second issue is going to be a sociological question. That is, how do we live together in sin? This is a major, major problem that we have today, not just between man and woman, but between all of mankind. How are we able to live together? How are we able to live together when we think different about religion or politics and so on and so forth? This is an issue that comes up. Uh, we can read that out of this from 2.18. It says that, and the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. Now understand this. It is not man that said that it was not good that he should be alone. Man did not mind being alone. We find that out after the fall. What is the first thing he says to God? The woman that you gave me, right? It was not man's choice to have woman. It was God's choice to have woman. It is God that desired community. It is not man. Man is an individual. Therefore, the individual precedes the community. It is God's will for community. It is not man's will for community. This has caused a major problem. So we have a sociological issue. The third issue is nature. And we see this uh, in 15 through 17, but also particularly uh, in 18 through 19, there's, or 19 through 20, when it says that Adam gave the names to all the animals. We see an issue with this. We're going to talk about the two problems um, with the way that man dealt with the creatures versus the way that woman did, dealt with the creatures when she had her interaction with the serpent. And we're going to talk about what our relationship is with God's creation now that it's fallen. Right. And we're going to find we're going to we're not just going to talk about the questions. We're going to actually look into the answers. We're going to look into the answers. I believe all of these answers are found in the gospel. The fourth issue is a psychological issue. We see in verse 25, it says, and they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Now, they were, it was not that they were not ashamed with regards to with it, being with each other, because even when they fell, they still stayed together. It was God who they hid from. So when they were naked and not ashamed, they were, they were naked, right? And there are still people who can get naked in front of other people, right? They, they, they don't mind too much. So it is the issue that they did not want to stand before God naked after they fell. So before they fell, they were not ashamed with regards to standing before God. Now, we see later on that God tells Moses, anyone who sees my face shall not live, which means that they did not have a knowledge of good and evil because obviously they didn't have that yet. So therefore, they didn't understand the holiness of God. So when the fall happened, you understand the holiness of God. You also understand the weakness of your own body. Because the second reason why they were naked was because nature was not a threat to them. They could be naked. One of the reasons why we wear clothes, it was cold this morning. So we put on warmer clothes, right? When it's summertime, you'll see, you'll notice people wear a lot less clothes. So when they were naked, there, were, there was two reasons. They didn't understand the, the holiness of God. And also nature wasn't a threat to them yet. So there, there's a, a psychological question that because the fall happened, how has that affected us? So I want to talk, we're going to talk about those four things. We're first going to discuss God's functioning here because he's functioning in three ways. And these three ways are still ways that 
uh, are involved in all of our lives today. The first way that he is functioning is he's, in, he's functioning as an employer. Let's look at um, 15 and 16 here. It says, and the Lord God took the man, put him into the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying of every tree of the garden, thou mayest freely eat. In other words, he was telling him a particular job that he had to do. He was telling him where he had to do it. And he was saying that if he did it, then he would be able to reap the rewards of that. Right. You can eat of the of this garden, but this is what you have to do since you're going to be in this garden. So, number one, God is is functioning as an employer. He's telling man what he is supposed to do with regards to work. And he is telling him what rewards he is going to receive because of the work that he's going to do. The second way that he is functioning, he's functioning as a teacher. We look at verse 17. It says, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. In other words, he's saying, if you eat this, good things can happen to you with the tree of life. But if you eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you're going to die. He was teaching Adam something that he did not know. Adam did not know about death. He had no concept of death. Right. So there was no reason for him to be scared about anything. He, he was not scared of nature. Obviously, he was walking around naked in a garden, enjoying himself. Life was fantastic. Uh, he didn't have to deal with other people. Right. What's the main problem with church? That there are other people there. Right. When we talk about why we end up with problems, why do we have problems at work? Because people are there. Right. We have bosses and coworkers and people under us and they all drive us nuts. Why do spouses have problems? Because they have spouses. Right. Why do parents have problems? Because they have children. Why do children have problems? Because they have parents. So, right. Adam didn't have any of these. He had a fantastic life. He had none of those things. So there were things that God had to teach him. So God is functioning as a teacher. Adam is a student. The third way in which God is functioning, he's functioning as the father. We look at verse 18. He says, I want you to get married. I don't like it that you're alone. Now, Adam didn't seem to mind, but God says, I don't like it that you're alone. You need to go and you need to get married. Now, God has a little bit different power. He can't just go grab a woman. He actually was able to just make one. But he says, I want you to go get married. We find in Luke 3.38 that Adam is referred to as the son of God. So God is his father. So even back then, way, way back then, at the very, very beginning, God was already functioning as a father to mankind. He was already the father. So, and we find later in, in, in 1 Corinthians 15 also that Adam, uh, Paul refers to Jesus as the second Adam. So uh, God is the, is the father to Adam here. So he tells him, I want you to get married. I don't like it that you're alone. So we have these three ways that he's functioning. And now we're going to talk about man. We happen to be man. When I say man, I know it's 2020, but I'm talking about mankind. So you understand man and woman at, at the same time. Right, I'm not trying to be anti-woman here, but <clears throat> this first question, we're going to look into the answer of this. Should man align his will with God's? Now, I, this is where I sympathize with Adam. There were many, many things required of Adam. Not, not, you know, not really, he didn't have to like hard labor or anything like that, but there were many things required of Adam. And think about this. He has no other relationships Right. He just has the animals that he sees around him. Maybe he sees angels because maybe he had some kind of concept of gods as the serpent talks about later. And then he has God, the one who made him. Right. But he has no relationship with this person who made him. Right. Now, we think about why we should um, follow God. Uh, well, God, for one thing, he sent his son to die for us. Right. Nobody had died for Adam. Nobody had actually done anything for Adam that he had just made him and he put him in this garden and he told him stuff to do. So I can kind of understand 
uh, why Adam didn't maybe necessarily completely trust God in everything that was going on. But I, I want you to turn to Luke 22, 42. This is something that I think that Jesus from the time of the Garden of Gethsemane all the way to the resurrection, I believe, gives us answers to all of these questions. We find a man again, and I, and I say man, I'm talking about Christ here. We find him uh, in a garden again. And he's going to pray this time. This time, man is actually scared and nervous about death. Uh, totally different than the way that Adam was. Adam essentially had no fear because there was nothing to fear. He didn't really understand what fear would have been. He didn't understand what death was. But Christ is having a crisis here. Actually, uh, I'm just going to start with verse 40 here in Luke 22. And I hope that you turn there because I told you earlier I wanted you to turn to these places here. It says like this. And when he was at the place, he said unto them, pray that ye enter not into temptation. So he has other friends that he's also worrying about. It's not just himself that Christ is worrying about while he's in this garden. Something that Adam didn't have to deal with. And he was withdrawn from them a stone's cast and he kneeled and prayed. And he said, Father, if thou will, or if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And I think that this is the real answer as to why we should be obey. We should obey God and that we should align our will with God's not because he commanded us to not because he has authority over us. We should do it because he himself did it right. I call it an affinitive authority. It is not just that he stands over us in a position where he's God and he can smash us if he wants to. It is because he himself sacrificed his own will. To follow the fathers. He did it himself as an example for us, right? He actually came, became man for our sakes, gave his own power up. We, we, we read in John 17 when he asked the father, I want the glory that I had before the foundation of the world, right? He wanted those things. He wanted to be able to take over. He wanted to rule over the world. The, uh, the creation is really his, right? But he had to give himself up to die because that was what the father's will was. So in other words, God himself has done the thing that he's asking you to do. And I think that that's very important for anybody who's in authority in any way. That we make sure that the people who would be under us know that we are willing to do the things that we're asking them to do. Because if you're not willing to do those things, they're not going to respect you and they're not going to do the things that you want to do. I call it an affinitive authority. And I think this is what God is showing us here, that because he submitted himself, we now have no choice. We have, as Paul would put it, we have no excuse to not submit ourselves to his will. Now, Adam didn't have that. And so I can sympathize with Adam. But now we can't sympathize with each other with regards to that. We know what the gospel says, what Christ was willing to do. He was willing to submit his own will to the father's will and eventually actually give up his own life. So we don't have an excuse as maybe we would give Adam an excuse. So the first question of should we align our will to God's is yes. Not just because he has authority over us, but because he himself did it. Right? Affinitive authority. Think about that. I'm coining it. I'm going to patent it the whole deal. Right? I'll write a whole thing about it. Affinitive authority. The second thing is this. How do we live together in sin? The sociological question. Now, as I said before, it, it's very important that we understand that man did not necessarily deem it bad that he was alone. God deemed it bad that he was alone. And that's important when we're coming up. One of the reasons why we have all these social problems, we have all these revolutions that have happened all through time. 
we ourselves are products of a revolution is because we are constantly trying to find a way that man can live together in a better way. Right. That's one of the whole reasons. What, how, how, what's the situation with authority? How do we live with each other? How do we deal with the, with the racial issue? How do we deal with the man woman issue? All of that stuff is going on all the time. And I think we have to look at it in a, in a certain way. For one, when I think about man and woman, woman is very unique. She's more unique than any of the other creatures on earth because woman was made through mediation. She was every other creature. And we're going to read this. God points this out in 19. It says, and out of the ground, the Lord formed every beast of the field, every fowl of the air and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam would call them, every living creature, that was the name thereof. And Adam gave names to all the cattle. And then we see later on that it is woman was made not from the dust of the ground like every living creature. And like Adam, woman was made through mediation. She was made through man's rib. Man was made from the ground, but woman was not made from the ground. And what that means is man is the picture of the individual because he was made from this very dust. But woman is the carrier of the community. So everything from then on out, woman was created as the substance by which man would be created. So when we read in Job 14, we see he says he talks about every person who's born of a woman. Christ talks about this in Matthew 11, 11. Every person who's born of a woman, he was talking about John the Baptist. Everybody who's made after Adam and Eve was made of a woman. She became, her womb became the very hands of God that forms the shape and the image of man. So woman is a very social being. And we see this with the relationships that they have with the creatures. When Adam speaks to the creatures, he is an authority over them and he names them. But when the serpent speaks with Eve, she's sociable. So woman is a more sociable creature, right? And it ended up in deception as sometimes it does. So we're not going to blame, we're not blaming women for anything, but there is a noticeable difference psychologically between the man and the woman. And this sociologically causes a lot of problems. But woman is the carrier of the community because the next person who's born from the woman could in fact be the leader of the community, right? We just, she sang a song about Mary. Why is Mary so important to us? Because Mary gave birth to the son of God, right? She's just as important as the dust of the ground that God made Adam from. And we all come from Adam. But now as we're saved, right, who's the second Adam? It's Christ. And he came from woman. So woman was made into the new substance that God used to make man after that. So community is afterwards. Individuality comes first. Man is the picture of the individual. Woman is the picture of the community. And the individual precedes the community. So this constant sort of tension comes between the two of them. It gets even worse when uh, Eve convinces Adam to eat of the fruit. And what is the first thing he say? The woman you gave me, not the woman I wanted, the woman that you gave me and this. And what does this cause further down the road? When Cain kills uh, Abel, what does he say to God? Am I my brother's keeper? We find way, way down the line, thousands of years later. And uh, I believe it's Luke 10, 29, when the lawyer is speaking with Christ, who is my neighbor? When he's talking about, uh, love your neighbor as yourself. That is the sociological problem. Who are we supposed to love? What type of responsibility do we have towards each other? And I believe that Christ again gives us the answer. I want you to turn to Luke 23. Now we're going to go. Not we're, we're moved on from the garden. And we're going to go into onto the cross here. Um, I want you to look at verse 32. And this is very important. Christ tells us how we can live with each other because man and woman will always have a problem that they will have with each other. 
right? There's always some woman who's done some man wrong. There's always some man who's done some woman wrong. There's always some person of a particular race who's done something wrong to another person of a particular race. There's always somebody from another country who's done something else wrong to somebody from another country and vice versa, so on and so forth. This is how Christ says we are to deal with it. Christ himself has already been put on the cross. He's already been spit on. He's been uh, laughed at. Uh, They have uh, scourged him the whole deal. And we're going to start at verse 32. Now there are two malefactors. It says there were also two other malefactors led uh, with him to be put to death. And when they were come to the place which is called Calvary, where there they crucified him. And the malefactors, one on the right hand and the other on the left. And then said Jesus, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And they parted his raiment and cast lots. Now they did not ask Christ for forgiveness. He decided that he was going to ask God to forgive them anyways. That is that Christ himself, even though he was sinless, and even though these people were doing this thing to him, has given us the way that we can, as Christians, live with people in sin. We can do it through forgiveness. Outside of forgiveness, there is no way in which we can live together in any sense if we continuously bring up the sins of other people. There's, I, heard a, uh, I read a, uh, an article in the Atlantic a week after the election There's two souls in the country. We can never be united. We might as well go ahead and go to war. Let's go pick up the the things he was saying that uh, the the person who's proposed that that had won the election, that they they should take up arms and kill the people who had voted for the person who was who's allegedly now the former president. Right. They should go and kill each other. I heard a person that I spoke with myself that said, I I don't want uh, those uh, Democrats dead, but I just want them gone. I want them to go. I wanted to go away. And some of you chuckle. I hear some of that, right? Some of you are laughing. You know what? But Christ doesn't say that. Christ says it the other way. He says that we, for, we should forgive them and we should even ask the Father to forgive them. We think about people who want to kill babies. But do we think about that we are the reason that the Son of God was put on the cross? We are the murderers of the Son of God. Now, we, now when, they, when we talk about these, these situations with the babies... All of that is bad. A lot of the things are bad. The wars, all the things that have gone on. But God is the judge of that, not us. We are supposed to be the witnesses and the ambassadors of Christ. We have been given, according to Paul in Second uh, Corinthians 5, we have been given a ministry of reconciliation. That is the whole point. I want to read this from Romans 5. And again, because I'm doing it, I'm demanding that you're doing it, right? Affinitive authority. I'm turning to Romans 5. I want you to turn to Romans 5. And I'm going to read verses 8 through 11 of Romans 5. I think this is one of the great verses that Paul wrote. And it should humble us in every way. It says this, but God commended his love towards us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were yet sinners, right? Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies... We were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. In other words, the very enemies that you discuss when you're talking about enemies in this, in this country, political opponents or enemies religiously, people who don't hold our beliefs, who think differently than we do, you need to remember that Christ, we were those people to Christ. And instead of casting us out, he decided to die for us. Right? That's how we are reconciled to mankind. It is through forgiveness and understanding that we are all sinners. 
that we have all fallen, that we all come from Adam and Eve and that we are all lost and that the only way we can be reconciled in any sense is by the cross of Jesus Christ. Outside of that, there is no reconciliation. And since we are people who call ourselves Christians, people who try to uh, in some way represent Christ here on earth, we ourselves should behave in this way. We should be willing to do that. And if we're not willing to do that, then we need to either say that we're not Christians or we need to come down to the altar and ask for forgiveness. So that's the second question. How do we live together in sin? Christ showed us on the cross forgiveness. That is the only way of reconciliation in this world that we live in. Now we come to the third issue, and that is how, what is our relationship to fallen creation? This has also become very uh, contentious in recent years when we talk about nature. Uh, we, but I want to point this out because this is very interesting. Let's go back to Genesis t- uh, 2 again. And I want you to read verses 8 and 9. This is so interesting to me. It says, I like the sound of the crinkling of the, of the pages. So go ahead and turn back there from where you were. But it says this. And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And now this is the, the really interesting part. And out of the ground made the Lord to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. In other words, the perfect earth itself already grew death from it. Right? Because death came from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Which means that death had already grown up from, from, the, uh, from the earth. Which is so interesting to me that the tree of life, which gave eternal life, grew out of that same earth. And the tree that gave us death. So there's already, again, we see even before the fall, there was a point of tension between man and nature. Because nature could, in fact, bring about death to man if he decided to eat from this tree of, of, good, of uh, good and evil. And, of course, he, he did. <laughs> Maybe because it was the woman's fault, but whatever. The point is, is that he ended up doing it, right? So death was already present in the garden. It was already present before the fall, which is so interesting to me that this happened. And I want to talk about why God decided to do that. This is just an aside. The reason why he decided to put that in there is because the obedience was the only manner in which Adam could properly worship God. Right? There was no way that Adam had any concept or knowledge of God's holiness. He could not go and kneel before him. He did not know what God had done for him. He did not know who God was. He could stand completely naked before God and not be ashamed. He was, he was fine with that. The only manner in which, and of course they didn't have sacrifice yet because there was no death. The only manner in which man could properly worship God was to obey him. And he commanded that he not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Of course, he failed in that. But nevertheless, that was why he gave the tree. Some people ask, why would he put the tree? It seems uh, bad of him to do that. But he put the tree there. In other words, so we see death has already grown out of this tree. And again, I find the answer is found at the cross of Christ. Um, there's a very important part. I want to go to Mark fifteen seventeen. I'm sorry I'm making you go back and forth, but, you know, you need to get working. You need to get going. We don't have the, um, we don't have the time where we shake hands, the fellowship time. I think we're, we lose a little bit of something with that. But see, when we read this, it says, and they put, 
They clothed him with purple and plaited a crown of thorns and put it about his head. Now, I want you to understand something is that the crown of thorns is not the picture of sin there. The crown of thorns is the result of sin, right? Thorns grew up not as a picture of sin. Thorns grew up out of the earth after the fall because of sin. It is the fruits of sin, right? So when it's placed upon his head, that's not what I want to focus on. The thing I want to focus on is the trees, right? I want you to go to Galatians 3, 13. I don't laugh. We're, we're trying, we're going to get there. I can do this maybe a little bit faster than you because we, you know, and Miss Deborah and I, we want to work on this with the, the drawing of the swords and things like that. I'm used to that. But in 3.13, it says this. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law being made a curse for us. For it is written, curses everyone that hangs on a tree. That the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ. That we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Now, why would hanging on a tree uh, be a curse, number one? But why would hanging on a tree be universal? Why would it go beyond the Jews? Because it is written in Deuteronomy 21.23, curses every man that hangs upon a tree. The reason is, is that he's going all the way back to this point here. That the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was the thing that brought death. Right? That's what put sin in man. When, when man took the fruit, he ate it. Sin was inside of him. And he could not get rid of it. It's in our nature. Every person born from Adam and Eve after that were all sinners. What God decided to do is that God decided to take a tr the tree again. Right? A lot of people think that the cross is the tree of life. The cross is not the tree of life. The cross is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil all over again. What he decided to do was take the sin that was in mankind put it on Christ and put the, him being the fruit and put him back on the tree. That was the point of the cross. That was why he was made a curse. That is why everyone, and Joshua talks about this after he hangs the king of Ai, the curse that was placed upon them when they took the silver from Jericho. That curse was placed upon that king. That's why they hung him on that tree. They wanted to get rid of the curse that they had upon themselves. Christ is the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. All of us have to go back. Just like Adam took it there, that's where he started with sin. All of us have to go back to the tree of the fruit of knowledge of good and evil. And as we've been talking about in Revelation on Wednesday, what's the first thing he promises to the church of Ephesus? If you get through this, you will be able to eat from the tree of life. That's where we're trying to get to. We have to go to the tree of fruit... Of, of knowledge of good and evil first. We have to go to Calvary first to, in order to get to the tree of life. What does that mean then with regards to our relationship with nature? Because this is what Paul has to say about it in Romans 8. Some people say it's the best thing that Paul ever wrote. I would disagree, I think, Second uh, Corinthians. But anyways, this is what it says. I'm going to read Romans 8. I'm going to read 18 till I stop. And uh, you can turn there if you want, but you don't necessarily have to do it this time. It says, for I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creature waits for the manifestation of the sons of God. He's talking about all of creation. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who subjected the same in hope. This is one of the reasons I believe why we have all of the problems we have with regards to nature, the hurricanes and so on. I think nature is kind of angry at us. 
because it was subjected against its own will, because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. So the creation is waiting on the, the Lord to return just as we are. God decided not to completely alter nature. God decided to go through nature for our redemption. So why is nature important? It is not just that nature still provides life for us because it still does. We still eat from the fruits of it. We still kill the animals and we eat those. Although some people don't do that anymore, but uh, I still like burgers, you know, but we don't do that anymore. Why is nature important to us is because also it's a key to our redemption. Christ himself had to be hanged upon the tree in order for us to be redeemed. That is why nature should be honored. Because it is necessary to our redemption. So, and, and I'm going to give you two more and then we'll move on. This isn't like an environmentalist speech. I, but I want you to understand our, what our uh, relationship is. There are two more things of why we should honor God's creation. One in Revelation 11:18, After the two witnesses are killed, they are risen from the dead. They go up. The seventh trumpet is blown by the seventh angel. All sorts of judgment starts coming upon the earth. In Revelation eleven eighteen, it says, now destroy those who destroy the earth. So people who destroy the earth are, are going to be judged in a very, very um, intense and terrible way, according to God. The second reason why we really should honor nature is because nature is a form of revelation. I'm going to read this from Paul real fast. Uh, you know, this would be like destroying a, a, a great book here. It says... If I can get there. Romans 1, 18 through 20. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. And other people, in other, in other words, people will be judged because of how creation is made even. They won't be without an excuse to say that there is no God because creation itself shows that. So creation should be something that we really honor. We need to understand that Christ used nature to redeem us. We need to remember that. That is the way that we are reconciled to it. And if you want, I'm not going to do it, but I would like you to read Colossians 1, 19 and 20, where he discusses how he has reconciled everything by the blood of his cross, both on earth and in heaven. So nature is very important. The fourth question is the psychological question, which I think is more difficult and way more interesting than all of the other ones. And you could do a whole sermon on this. You could do whole classes and, 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 and a lot of people do actually. But that question is why? And I want to talk about why here. We see in 25 that man is naked and the wife, and they were not ashamed, right? So there's no guilt. They have no guilt. They have no dread. They have no fear, right? They're not going to die. They don't really know or understand what they are in relation to God, just as we understand that there is a qualitative difference between God and man. We are obviously very different than what God is. So man began in ignorance, right? And he, but when he fell, he split apart, and he split apart, and some people, again, would blame this on God. But the fall was, in fact, man's choice. This is how he fell, or how he split apart, rather. For one, his desire was split apart. It used to be that desire was, con together, was connected with responsibility. 
right? But we see that the desire for pleasure in the desert and the necessity of responsibility was separated in sin. In other words, he could enjoy his time in the garden and the fruit was still going to grow. There was a reward at the end of the day because he could eat from the fruit of the, uh, of the field or the garden. Now, in Genesis three seventeen through 19, it says he has to work uh, by the sweat of his brow to even be able to eat. Right. And, that, and again, why have we had all these problems in society? Because we are trying to create a system where we have to work as less as possible. We're trying to create a time where we can uh, enjoy ourselves. Right. Working hard is obviously very hard. And people feel that strain psychologically. They feel the responsibility. I have to pay bills. I have to do, I have to pay things for the kids. I have to pay things for my spouse or whatever. There's all sorts of problems that people have that develop within their minds because of the pressure of having to work. Work, work, responsibility and pleasure have been separated. Whereas in the garden, they were together and this has caused a major problem. The second part of desire that it's messed up is it's messed up man sexually, right? It says that he made it difficult for the pregnancy was going to be difficult for woman. Now, I don't know anything about that. Some of you women may have had a hard time with that. I'm assuming you have, <clears throat> right? So he caused pain. What have we been trying to do since that time? We've been trying to find a way so that women would not have to deal with the issues of pregnancy. That's why the, we had the advent of birth control. That's why we have abortions now. I don't want to have to deal with the responsibility of having the child. I don't want to have to deal with the problem. You know, you can't tell me what to do with my body. Why is that an issue at all? Because of sin. And this has caused a big split, right? It's caused a problem politically. It's caused a problem with families. It's because our desire has been split. It's been torn apart. Uh, The second part of this is that it's messed up man's destiny, right? So the first one is desire. And there were two of those within desire. But the second one is destiny. Man was not made to die. We were not made to die. And so when we're going to die, that messes with our heads. Because we know that at some point we have an end. But it does not just the fact that we have an end. That everyone around us also has an end. And this upsets us. Right? If you're a parent, you freak out because you want to do everything to make sure your kids don't die. Because your kids can die. There's that fear of that. Death. If you're a child, your parents can die. Uh, If you're a brother, your siblings can die. If you have friends, all your friends can die. This has messed up man's uh, relationships with each other. It's messed up the way that people behave because people genuinely go insane about trying to protect the people that they love, right? They really go nuts about this. And so this despair was illustrated, I think, uh, in an incredible way. This is the way that this is how Christianity is more unique than all of the other religions and all of the other philosophies. I want you to turn to Matthew 15. Oh, no, I'm sorry, Mark 15. We haven't gone to Matthew today for some reason. Uh, it wasn't on the radar. I want you to go to Matthew 15, 34. We get to see the split in, in an incredible way here. Because Christ is on the cross, right? And we come up to the ninth hour. And he cries out with a loud voice, the Eli, Eli, Lama, Sabachnia. Which is, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Now, this is an incredible thing because it, it's, it's pointing to the fact that God has allowed license for man to ask him questions in the first place. And I love the fact that Christ condescended and came down to man. And then he sat around with people throughout his life and he let them ask him questions. 
Don't ever, when a kid asks you questions or somebody's questioning you, don't ever get upset about that, right? Because even, even the lawyers and the, and the Levites and all the people who were asking Christ questions, they weren't doing it out of good faith. They were trying to mess with him. They had their own ideas, but, they, but Christ still let it happen. Remember, it was them who decided not to question him anymore because of the answers he was giving. And they said, well, we're not going to bother with you anymore because he kept giving them answers that they couldn't. They couldn't deny. So I want, I'm, that, that's just a side note for people in authority. Always let people question you. This is why God is great, because he makes the room for rebellion. But uh, questioning is great. But here we have an incredible thing, is that we have an internal dialogue between God the Father and God the Son. Right? God the Son, in taking on man, in taking on flesh, is now taking on the sins of the world, understands the situation and the despair that man goes through. He is not simply asking why he's suffering. He's asking why in total, why existence at all. And I want to, I want to go to these verses because I love that this starts at the very beginning, the oldest book in the Bible, or what was supposed to be the first oldest book that we have is Job, right? I'm going to read from Job ten eighteen real fast, and you can write these down and go there later. It says, wherefore, then hast thou brought me forth out of the womb. Oh, that I had given up the ghost and no eye had seen me. I should have been as though I had not been. I should have been carried from the womb to the grave. Are not my days few? Cease then and let me alone that I might take comfort a little. He was asking the question, why do I even exist? We go forth uh, maybe, maybe 600 years or so. We're going to go to Ecclesiastes. We have the wisest man in the world. This is Solomon. And this is what he says in Ecclesiastes 6, 3 through 5. If a man beget a hundred children and live many years so that the days of his years be many and his soul be not filled with good and also that he has no burial. I say that an untimely birth is better than he. For he comes in with vanity and departs in darkness and his name shall be covered with darkness. Moreover, he has not seen the sun nor known anything. This has more rest than the other. It is better to not exist. This is the point that sin has taken man to. I'm going to go about five, six hundred years later than that. And this is the last one. But this is in Jeremiah. I'm going to go to Jeremiah 20. I was almost there. Jeremiah 20, 14 through 18. This is what Jeremiah has to say. And you know, he went through some bad stuff. It said, curse be the day wherein I was born. Let not the day wherein my mother bared me be blessed. Curse be the man who brought tidings to my father saying, a man child is born unto thee, making him very glad. And let that man be as the cities which the Lord overthrew and repented not. Let him hear the cry in the morning and the shouting at noontime. He did not want to exist. God himself now is asking God, why does man exist? That is an incredible Situation and an incredible conversation to be having that God himself is dying and he's asking God the father why that is the psychological question. Why is there something here rather than nothing? I think that's a much more important question uh, than saying, you know, prove to me something that I can't see. I can't stand when atheists asked, you know, can you prove there's a God? Why can they prove why there's something rather than nothing? That's a much more interesting question. But anyways, God himself asked this question. Why? Because he's dealing with sin. And I believe the answer again is found in the gospel, but it's not found at the cross. It's found three days later at the resurrection. I want you to turn to, um, we're going to go to John. Actually, I'm not going to make you read all of that. I'm going to say them out myself. What happens after Christ resurrects, right? He, he, he resurrects the woman, the women meet him. Right. And then what's the first thing he says in Matthew 28? 
he says, tell the disciples to meet me in Galilee. We have later on, he walks down the road to Emmaus and then he breaks bread in Luke 24. And then he meets the disciples without Thomas in John 20, 19 through 23. Later he meets with Thomas in uh, John 20, 24 through 29. He then cooks fish with the seven and tells Peter, go and, and feed my sheep in uh, all of John 21. In other words, the reason why God made us is because God himself is a social being. God made us so that we can be with him. And when he resurrected, the main thing that he tried to do was continuously be with him. What does he tell his disciples when he's going to leave? I shall be with you all the way to the end of the age. He promises to be with us because God wants to be with us. Because God himself, even though he's one, he's also three persons. That is the other incredibly in, uh, unique thing about Christianity, the Trinity. Right? They were together. They were a family. There's a Father, Son, there's a Holy Spirit. And he made man so that we can be together, even though he made one of them. He then decided that being alone was not good. Even though man did not decide it, God himself wants people to be together and he wants people to live eternally with him. So our desire needs to be aligned with God's desire, right? The, the point of all the way when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, his decision in the Garden of Gethsemane, saying not my will but thine, led to his eternal destiny. And it's the same with us. And so the last question I have to ask you is uh, what has your what, what you know what decision have you made with regards to Christ? Because a lot of people think eternity starts when you die. Eternity doesn't start when you die. It starts when you're born. The decisions you make now will lead to your eternal destiny. Christ has the uh, eternal uh, body. He has the uh, resurrected, glorified body. He's up there. He's uh, mediating for us. But the reason why he's still a person and he's going to be living with us forever. We're going to be on a new heaven and a new earth. If you make the right decisions now. If you have decided to accept Christ as your savior now. If you have decided that you want to align your will to God's. If you have decided that you want to be reconciled to man and God through the, Christ of, through the cross of Jesus Christ. Then your eternal destiny will be with God. It's up to you though. Because there's another eternal destiny with regards to hell. Because you will also receive a resurrected body. <clears throat> and you will have to stand at the great white throne. And in the resurrected body you will then be thrown into the lake of fire. So there is an eternal destiny for us. But it's based on what decisions you were making with regard to your desire. And it started all the way back when God made Adam and Eve. And it's going all the way to right now. Well that's um, a sermon. Four questions. Hopefully it uh, intrigued you in some way. And... Uh... We'll talk to you next time. Have a good night.